welcome everybody to the very, very first episode of Roger's List. My name is Steve Guntley. And I'm Michaela Nicholson. Oh, we're so happy to be here. We're going to be talking about movies every day. If you're here uh, listening to us, it's because you're a movie fan as well. And uh, welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, so this is the podcast where we are going to go through every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. We're going to watch them. We're going to discuss them. We're going to give you some facts and some figures. And we're generally going to have a great time. Just an eye-slicingly good time, I would say, <laughs> is what you're, in, what you're in store for. Well, foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> um, so today, to start the list off, we're going to be talking about the movie Un Chien Andalou by Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali. But before we get into any of that, I chose that one specifically because it's the shortest movie on the list. Uh, so I wanted to use most of this episode to kind of talk about what the show is, uh, who we are, who Roger Ebert is, what this list is, and just kind of kind of give you an idea of what our format is going to be. Yeah, Steve's uh, going to kick us off. I'm kicking us off. I'm <laughs> kicking it right off here. So, uh, yeah, pupils. I guess, first of all... Um, Hi, Michaela. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Oh, I'm so I feel glad. like we never get to talk like we, this. We never get to talk like this. It's very exciting. <laughs> We're We've, always in a room with a third person. Generally, yeah. <laughs> so we did a podcast before this called uh, Jest Friends, mm-hmm. J-E-S-T. Uh, that's completed. You can find all of that. <laughs> that is the podcast where we went through and forced ourselves to read Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. 50 or so pages at a time. Uh, and we did it. Yeah. We read it. I we mean, read Infinite Jest together. So we yeah. we uh, were committed to we're, we're committed to completing these projects. Yeah. You know, you've shown yourself to be the completer of daunting projects. I yes yes. I, my other show is the Ultra sixty four where we're playing every game in the Nintendo sixty four <laughs> catalog, and that's coming to a close pretty soon. A so I'm a completionist, I guess. I, I've got a weird obsessive compulsion. Um, and I'm just here to ride on those coattails till it <laughs> takes me to the end. Well, you know what? Hang on, it's going to be a bumpy ride. The entire time because i'm uh, a bad driver well let me let me go into a little bit of the format of the show and you know what it's the first episode we might mix things up on the fly we're gonna let things evolve but this is just kind of what we had in mind so each week we're gonna watch a different movie off of the ebert list uh, of great movies there's 364 ish movies on there it's a little squidgy and i'll get into why but uh that we're going to watch them all in random order. Uh, Are we talking like random number generator style? Random, random order? number generator. Yeah, oh. which was uh, I, I. I'm I'm a. Uh, that is exciting. I'm a spreadsheet dork, <laughs> so I've been having so much fun writing all these spreadsheets. So who out. knows what we could be watching? You never know. Well, I mean, I know because oh, I've got the right. list, but I can also mix it up if I want to surprise you. And so, do you want yeah. copy of the list, or do you want to be surprised? I want to be week? surprised. You want to be surprised? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Leave me in the dark. That's more fun. I love that. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so each week we're going to do these uh, totally random and, uh, we, yeah, like I said, we do retain the right to move things around if it's something's yeah. topical, you know, we might want to talk about Groundhog Day on Groundhog <laughs> Day. You never sure. know. And, uh, hopefully we're going to bring in some guests after a little while, but you know what? For now, I'm cool with just us. Yeah. I'm, I'm cool just ch- kill it. You're making Steve show. I was about to say chilling and then kicking it and I wound up saying killing. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, cool. I'm cool just killing you, Michaela. Thank you. I'm just, I'm cool with I it. I appreciate that. So, uh, we're going to talk about some basic details about the movies, uh, give you a summary of the plot, the cast, a couple of random bits of trivia, and then we're going to dig into our kind of reviews of the movies themselves. We're going to discuss themes, and we're going to discuss our reactions to it, and this is all going to culminate with uh, us adding the movie we just watched to an ongoing, ever-expanding ranked list. Yeah. Where we are going to list all of these movies by 
I think we'll just call it by personal preference because I don't feel like I'm in the position to say this great movie is not actually a great movie, right. you know? Like, yeah. I, I'm not going to say that unless it's, like, actually really bad. Yeah, that's always my list preference, too. I think you get too in the weeds if you're not going by your actual feelings and you're like, well, objectively, Yes, this movie is technically 98.2% better than other movies. Uh, well, what a professional <laughs> podcast. Geeky <laughs> goo goo. Uh, That's film Twitter. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try and go into these movies as cold as I can. <clears throat> um, we'll, we'll reveal in a little bit just how many of these movies I've seen. But I've seen quite a few of these movies. I know you've seen quite a few of these mm-hmm. movies already. Some of these are movies that everybody's seen, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's not... It's not super. It's not a super elitist list, yeah. which is something I like about it. Like and that was Roger's whole deal too. Is he was like a populist. He was, he was. like movies should be accessible for all. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so yeah, we'll talk about that. And then after we record the episode, we're gonna go each read the essays of the movies we just watched, and then we're gonna open the next episode talking about that essay, how close we got in our <laughs> assessment, whether we agree with what he wrote or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, particular passages that we liked, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess to be upfront and honest about it, I have read a lot of these essays already mm-hmm. because they. I used to read them every week when they came out. Mm-hmm. I don't retain things all that well, <laughs> so I don't really remember them, but there might be bits that there I've read There might be before. some subconscious Roger quips that you'll be using as your own, but then we'll find out next week. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and there are also, there are a lot of movies on this list that I never would have seen had they not been on this list, mm. had they not encouraged mm-hmm. me to seek it out. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to go into a, a little bit of a 50 cent bio of Roger Ebert, but firstly, I want to ask you, Michaela, mm-hmm. what is your relationship to Ebert and to this list and uh, just what's what's your deal? What's sure. your whole what, deal? What is my deal? What is your whole Jesus. deal? Um, okay, so I came upon Roger Ebert when he had a TV show uh, called Ebert and Roper, um, and oh, wow. I was actually more drawn, I mean, I, I was a kid when it was on television, and I was a little bit more drawn to Roper. Okay, um, wow. Maybe because he was younger, and I saw Roger as kind of like the older buzzkill. I think technically um, he is the most handsome film critic on TV. Maybe, not anymore, but not anymore. definitely at the time. <laughs> I don't know. I think A.O. Scott's kind of cute. Oh, but that's it, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Hey, Elvis um, Mitchell, what's up? What's up, baby? Uh, so like I, I, um, I guess a little just briefly, like I grew up very sheltered and my access to movies was through, um, criticism or, um, like we got like plugged in magazine, which is Mm. like a Christian, like, you know, clean flicks type thing where it reviews movies from like a fundamentalist Christian lens. God's not dead and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. And it would review these like secular humanist as my dad would say films and I'd be like ooh (laughs) so that's how I like would know of films and also from like watching Ebert and Roper so I would hear them talk about these things but I usually was not allowed to watch them because I was like the kind of kid who wasn't allowed to see PG-13 movies when they were 17 you know what I mean um so I, I had an affinity for Ebert and Roper. They used to have the archive online and you could search like every single movie that they had done and you could watch them. So I remember like spending Sundays in the computer room, just like going through all the reviews, anything I could get my hands on and just watching them talk about it because I thought it was so fascinating. Um, and I actually ended up like writing Richard Roper like fan mail yes. at one point. Um, and I, I think I asked him like where his favorite spot to sit in the theater was and uh-huh. like what he likes to drink. And he responded and it's like the back middle and a black cup of coffee 
Wow. So there you go. Look at um, that. That's great. <laughs> so uh, eventually I I sort of grew out of the Richard Roper criticism. Like after Ebert left the show and mm. Richard sort of had a rotating cast of guests, like I, you know, moved on and, and I've, I've started to realize that Richard Roper is like a big bro kind mm. of as a film critic and sort of felt more learned when I started reading more of Roger Ebert stuff, I was like, oh, this is the guy who like knows where it's at. Especially once I started going to school for film yeah. and start and his stuff started popping up in our curriculum. It was like, oh, this is this is the guy. And um, that's the reason that I went into journalism was because I eventually one day wanted to write about film. So Roger Ebert, obviously a big part of that. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how he's in my life. And that's how I ended up here today. We have a very similar origin story with that Whoa. as well, you know, because uh, I similarly went to journalism school because I wanted to write about movies, which here we are. eventually did kind of get to happen. I, I, I worked at a newspaper and I forced them to run a column that I wrote of movie reviews. Mm -hmm. So I technically got to do that. Uh, but yeah, I, I was also, I was similarly sheltered as a kid. It sounds like you were more like emotionally and religiously sheltered. And I was physically isolated. Mm. I, I grew up in a cabin in the middle of the woods in Colorado. People always think I'm exaggerating that. I'm really not. Um, it was a two-hour commute to school every day. Mm. And some days I would be forced to just like hang out in the library and wait like oh, wow. to, to get yeah. a ride or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I would just kind of obsessively pour over the video section in the mm -hmm. library. Mm -hmm. Also, anytime I went to a, a grocery store with my mom, I would uh, ask to be left in the video mm -hmm. store department. Yeah. I read all the VHS covers. I memorized all these movies and just kind of had this obsessive relationship with it. I wouldn't say I really got into film on like an intellectual level until I saw Pulp Fiction oh, really? when I was like 14 or 15. Oh, Weirdly, that was the movie, huh? That was my movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that was the movie that kind of, and looking back on it now, it's like, I, well, first of all, I still think it's a great movie, mm -hmm. but I also recognize that it's kind of a basic bitch bro choice, you know? I mean, it, it's a gatekeeper movie, right? It, like it, it kind opens of is. the door to other movies. It does, which is which is kind of what I loved about it. I think I saw this when I saw Pulp Fiction at that time, my favorite movie in the entire world, you're going to love this, was Dragonheart ah! with Sean Connery <laughs> and Dennis okay. Quaid. I thought, I thought that was the greatest movie ever made. I watched it over and over and okay. over. Gotcha. Uh, then I saw Pulp Fiction and I'm just like, holy shit, this is what movies can be. Yeah, this sure. is what this is what they are. And like, it's Tarantino kind of spoke movie mm -hmm. in a way that I found really appealing. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden during these uh, lengthy stays in the library, I just kind of started looking for film books. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones I found was Roger Ebert's The Great Movies, mm -hmm. the first volume. Mm -hmm. So I read all of those. I decided like, all right, I'm going to watch all of these you movies. You read the whole, the whole thing? I read the whole book. Oh, yeah, I read yeah. the whole book, um, which wasn't all of his essays. It was like maybe 50 or something like that. But mm -hmm. yeah, I read the whole book. And uh, I started actively seeking out some of these movies in here that I'd never heard of, like Do the How Right Thing the and time? things like that. 15, 16, oh, okay. maybe, right yeah. around there. Um, but I still had the problem of being a teenager in the late 90s who lived nowhere near a video store. Mm. And so, like, it was kind of piecemeal you know i could yeah. i would pick these movies up when i could sure. then i went to college a couple years later netflix became a thing and all of a sudden all these movies i've been reading about were suddenly just a click away right. which was so cool mm -hmm. and so i just deep dived i just went 
real hard on anything uh you know my my tarantino thing led to a samurai movie thing which Mm -hmm. led to a western thing which Mm -hmm. led to a spaghetti western thing and then Mm -hmm. like into french new wave and Mm -hmm. on and on and on just kind of spiraled you know the way it does you know you discover one thing it just kind of daisy chains Mm -hmm. and uh ebert around that time started doing his great movies column like twice a month on his website and i would just be right there like eagerly reading all of them about 10 years ago, I made an attempt, I was probably closer to 15 years ago now, I made an attempt to try and watch every movie on this list. What uh, what stopped you? Uh, I think just, all right, um, yes, like I was saying, I think the, the only thing that really stopped me was just time, and just, uh, uh, I don't know, I kind of moved on to different interests, and other things just kind of started taking up your time, and mm-hmm. I, the, the list just kind of fell by the wayside. Eventually, it just started to feel like too big of a task, you yeah. know? And it was getting to the point where it was like, I want to be enjoying these. I don't want to just be checking items off a list. So right. I'm hoping the podcast format <laughs> will will help me uh, dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, if it helped with Infinite Jess. It, it helped, helped with Infinite Jess. It definitely did. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm coming with it. Uh, a little bit of a uh, uh, tribute. You know, for, for a while, like I really considered Ebert like my hero. Mm. Like he was like kind of what I wanted to be in a sure. lot of ways. And uh, yeah. I still think that's true in probably a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, let me give you the the little brief biography of Roger Ebert here mm-hmm. to get us started. So, um, you know, if, if you're listening to this, you probably already know he's <laughs> one of the best known film critics of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really kind of shifted the framework of film criticism. Like you said, like he was all about humanism and populism and, and he, he reviewed movies from the heart first and then the head later. Like he... he he gave a lot of credence to films that like made him feel something, you know, more than just like the intellectual detachment of other critics at the time, mm-hmm. which was really cool. Um, and he was never somebody who went after the cheap shots, mm-hmm. but he also made some of the funniest cheap shots <laughs> out there when he really hated something. So yeah, he had some zingers. Um, we'll, we'll give you a little brief overview. I would definitely recommend if you haven't yet to read his autobiography, Life Itself. Uh, which he published shortly before his death. It's one of my very favorite books, and it's just wonderful. Um, So Roger Ebert was born in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, in 1943, and he began his writing career in high school. At the time, he was set on becoming a sports reporter, uh, and that's what he went to college for, the University of Illinois. Uh, But uh, that changed in 1967 when he was hired by the Chicago Sun-Times as their resident film critic, and Ebert would write for that paper for the rest of his 40-plus year career. Uh, In 1975, he won the first ever Pulitzer Prize for film criticism. And that same year, he began filming a local access film review show called Sneak Previews Mm -hmm. alongside his rival from the Chicago Tribune, a guy named Gene Siskel. So that show started being syndicated in select markets in 1982 before it was acquired by a Disney subsidiary called Buena Vista Television, who distributed it nationally in 1986. They renamed it to Siskel and Ebert at the movies. And they kind of became an unlikely, like, cultural mm-hmm. phenomenon. Yeah. Like, everyone was always talking about, oh, well, we got to tune in to see the fat guy and the bald guy argue <laughs> with each other because they were the very passionate. Party type. Yeah, yeah. They were very passionate. They were very intelligent. Uh, they didn't always get along very well, yeah. which made for some compelling, like, dramatic TV. And uh, their their thumbs up, thumbs down system kind of became shorthand for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. although Ebert expressed later that, he he doesn't really like uh, that kind of simplistic rating system or even mm-hmm. like the four-star rating system. Like yeah. for his own purposes, he'd rather people just like read his essays and draw conclusions themselves. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he understands the expediency of it. Yeah. Um, Star cell. 
Yeah, they do. They definitely do. Um, so yeah, they had this really great prickly chemistry, and uh, you know, they I forget what movie. I think it was Carnosaur, like this bad Roger Corman, like uh, Jurassic Park knockoff. Mm -hmm. I think Ebert hated it and Siskel loved it. And they just kind of went at it for a long time (laughs) arguing about Carnosaur. Uh. Like, yeah, they they had some really great arguments. Mm -hmm. So the show remained a huge hit and a cultural touchstone throughout the 90s until uh, Siskel's death of cancer in 1999 at the age of 53. Uh, So the show brought in the new Tribune critic, Richard Roper, to Mm -hmm. take Siskel's place. And uh, you know what? He was fine, uh, but the chemistry was just never yeah. quite the same. They, they also like agreed on a bunch of stuff, which didn't really make for interesting television. It's true because Roper was one of those guys who kind of came up like worshiping Ebert, you know, right. and and they so were de- they were not equals. No, sure. not, not definitely not. So, but it, it was it was okay. But at the same time, like internet film review sites were cropping up everywhere, and that's kind of where people were going for their movie reviews. So the show yeah. lost audience. And then uh, Ebert's cancer diagnosis kind of yeah. cut the show short. They mm-hmm. they tried to revive it, like you said. Roper hosted it with a mm-hmm. rotating cast of hosts, and God, they did a version of it with Ben Mankiewicz and Ben Lyons. Oh, that was yeah. awful. I tried to watch that, but it was like when Blues Clues replaced Steve. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, it yeah. Just yeah. Did not feel right. Oh man, I remember they were like I was too old for Blues Clues, but I do remember <laughs> the urban legends that he like killed himself yeah, there like are others that he be- overdosed there was others crazy. that he was like marilyn manson secretly yeah, but like he just like shaved his head and joined a rock band yeah yeah <laughs> that's it yeah it, it was pretty normal dude uh but yeah so the show was finally canceled in 2010 um yeah ebert embraced the internet pretty early and he became even more prolific he wrote essays on his website and he published essays on his daily blog uh, the great movies called oh, in 1988. The first movie that Ebert wrote about was uh, John Cassavetes' A Woman Under the Influence. <gasps> ah! Great movie, right? Ah! Yeah. Uh, and the column was published semi-regularly for the next several years, uh, settling into a bi-monthly release schedule as Ebert took more control of his web presence. So in addition to being a great critic, Ebert has also contributed to films as a screenwriter. His most notable film, of course, is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Have, Have you, you seen, seen it? Yeah. Jinx, no. Oh, I love it. I love it. We'll have to watch it for this show at some point. Yeah. because It's not on his list? His own list? No, no, no. He's, he's not uh, his own horn. He's, he's not what you would call a modest man, but I think he's not modest. He's too modest to do that either sure, way. Sure. But yeah, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, mm-hmm. super campy, mm-hmm. uh, lots of nudity. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's kind of... A skin flick. It's a skin flick, basically, because mm-hmm. he was partnering with Russ Meyer, yeah. who a notorious <laughs> fan of TNA, but like... <laughs> Russ Meyer's movies have aged kind of well, though, because there's so much love towards mm-hmm. the schlock he's shooting. Like, mm-hmm. he really, really loves women. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily <laughs> for the right reasons, but he loves women. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, sure. But those two worked together on several films, and they maintained a close friendship for the rest of their lives. Um, mm-hmm. And Ebert, who was a lifelong bachelor, and if we're being quite honest, a bit of a womanizer uh, mm-hmm. for most of his life. Yeah. He uh, met at Chicago attorney Chaz Hammersmith in the late yeah. 80s, and they got married in 1992. They remained happily married for the rest of his life. Uh, so in 2002, Ebert was diagnosed with thyroid and salivary gland cancer, which required intense treatment, and eventually it necessitated the removal of his jaw, his mm-hmm. lower jaw, yeah. um, which permanently disfigured him, and it also cost him his voice and his ability to eat normally. Yeah. Uh, but he still wrote. He wrote. He never lost an ounce of sharpness uh, from in his written materials. He wrote even more prolifically on his website, mm-hmm. all the way up until his death in 2013 <laughs> at the age of 70. 
Uh, so Chaz still maintains his library of writing. RogerEbert.com still thriving today. They've got some great writers over there. Yeah, Matt uh, Zoller Sites. Sites. Yeah, Matt Zoller Sites. He's awesome. I think A.O. Scott writes for them sometimes mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Odie Henderson. Lots of really great writers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's still a great resource for filmmakers. Um, you know, there's a whole lot more to say about Ebert. He led a very, very interesting life. Romantically involved with Oprah Winfrey for much of the 80s, uh, as well as several other women. Uh, he's kind of got that, like, old school 60s cranky journalist thing going where yeah. he and the, like, studs Turkle would hang out and drink in Chicago bars and mm-hmm. talk about stories. And he's an interesting dude. So there's a lot worth digging into with Ebert. Um I want to quiz you on some stuff. Oh, Can great. I quiz you okay. on some stuff? Okay, just know my knowledge of Roger Ebert is very cursory. That's okay. So, That's okay. okay. The, Stand m- in for the audience. Mostly, I want to convey a little bit of information to the audience, <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll okay. just. I'm just curious to see if uh, right. any of this comes up. Is this multiple choice or open ended? Uh, this is open ended. Okay. But I'll I'll uh, I'll give you a lot of leeway. <laughs> All right. Okay. So uh, there are 384 movies on this list uh-huh. in total. Uh, what director do you think you're, that we're going to be talking about the most? What what filmmakers on this list the most times? Um, Thinking about what it, you know. Okay, is it a director that like you'll say it and it'll seem obvious? I'll be like, oh yeah, of course him. I think so. Him, I mean, right? it's a, I mean, him, it's a right? him. Yeah, it's yeah. a him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's um, I'll I'll give you a hint. It is not an American filmmaker. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, uh, cool, 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 cool. Pedro Almodovar. No, actually, Almodovar, Almodovar, zero entries on this oh. list, shockingly. No, the uh, the top director on this list, you might be surprised, Ingmar Bergman. Oh! Ingmar Bergman. Eight movies from big. Ingmar Bergman, okay. uh, followed by Scorsese with sure. seven. Yeah. And then uh, tied for six each are Steven Spielberg, Alfred yeah. Hitchcock, Akira yeah. Kurosawa, Werner Herzog, and Stanley Kubrick. All right, so the usual suspects. Usual suspects, mostly. But Bergman, I think, is an unusual yeah. one to be We're going to be watching one. some Persona. We're going to be watching Persona. Uh, Lots of the hits. No uh, Wild Strawberries, amazingly. Yeah, but I bet he would have gotten to it eventually. What do you think is the oldest movie on this list? Oh, the oldest. Um... Is it a silent film? It is a silent film, yeah. The one we talked about is not... 1929, it's not... Is it like Amelie's? No. Okay, is it like a a Buster Keaton or... No. It's not like a... Mm-mm. Chaplin or <clears throat> no you made it you're not gonna know this one no! I'll, I'll just tell you right now no! but okay, if no. you want to guess a year how about sure 19 no 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 1898 <laughs> 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 no sorry the one of Edward Moybridge's course <laughs> running around the track did not make the cut Damn. uh the earliest film on this list is called Kabiria and it's from 1914 okay so there you okay, go sure. uh what's the most recent movie on the list uh, I'm going to say it's like a David Lynch movie or something from the mid-2000s. No, uh, you're you're not too far off, though. Oh. It is from 2008, and it is a movie called Departures. Okay. So, yeah, I don't okay. really know a lot about Japanese film. Um, yeah. Okay, so what year is most represented on this list? Oh, can I guess the decade? You can guess a decade. Is yeah. it the 70s? No. Son of a bitch. Uh, is it the 60s? It is the 60s. Fuck yeah. All right. Do you have? A, do you want to narrow it to one of those? Uh, I'll give you two guesses. Okay, give me two two options. Okay, it's either 1967 or 1965. 1965. 
No. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> It is 1967. There are 11 movies from that year on this list, including uh, In Cold Blood, Fireman's Ball, The Producers, Bonnie and Clyde, Cool Hand Luke, and Belle du Jour. Ah, So interestingly, uh, did you read the recent book, uh, Best Movie Year Ever, about the year 1999? Yeah, yeah. that's that's. I watched a video essay about it. Oh, yeah. yeah, Great book. A lot of fun to read. And they make a persuasive argument. Only one movie from 1999 has made it onto this list. Do you have a guess? not the matrix it's not the matrix it's not fight club not the fight club it's not american he hated beauty. fight club actually yeah. Oh, yeah not american beauty it is magnolia ah! magnolia <laughs> also <laughs> the one and only pt anderson movie on the oh, list shocking gosh. to me shocking. oh my gosh i'm learning so many new things okay okay this one's kind of a trick question but you'll oh, you'll have a great. general sure. uh, idea of it so uh the movie we watched today is the shortest one on the list it's uh-huh. 16 minutes long uh-huh. uh what do you think is the longest one we're gonna have to watch uh-huh. We got some doozies. We got sure, some doozies sure, coming sure, sure. up. Uh, Franny and Alexander. That would be up there if we did. If it was on the list. If we well, it is on the list. Okay. Uh, but I guess we'll have to discuss that when we get to it because mm-hmm. there's a six and a half hour uh, TV cut of that movie, mm-hmm. and then the theatrical cut is only three hours. Mm-hmm. So that might be up there depending on which one we want to watch. Burned by a technicality. All right. So technically. Mm-hmm. If we're if we're talking about so this is this is where we get in the weeds. Mm-hmm. The Up documentaries yeah. by Michael Apted. Yeah, I was gonna say that's one entry on Ebert's okay. list, but it's like eight movies. Right. So in total, it's over a thousand. It's over over a thousand going. minutes. They're still going. It's sixteen hours and counting. If we watch all of those, so right. we'll need to discuss how we do that. <laughs> we also have some other technicalities. The Decalogue and um, Shoah uh, both clock in at right around ten hours. I forgot we had to watch. Those, those are gonna be a lot, <laughs> yeah. But they uh, they're meant to be watched in pieces. They aired on television right. originally, right? So the longest movie that you're meant to just sit and watch in one continuous mm-hmm. sitting is called La Belle Noiseuse. Mm. It's a French film that comes in at four hours on the dot. Oh, <laughs> like nothing. Easy. And apparently, it's like an erotic drama. We're gonna Ooh. be seeing four hours of boobs. Sweet. Great. Don't I'm already it. being very reductive. <laughs> Okay, uh, last little bit on here. So every 10 years, Ebert would submit his list to uh, for his picks to the sight and sound poll of the greatest movies of all time. Mm-hmm. He would submit his top 10. Mm-hmm. So he did this every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what movies do you think made his list in 2012? The last oh, one he did. Gosh. Okay, so these are movies that came out between certain years or these are like these are everything everything and i'll give you a hint there's one of these movies that made this list but isn't on the great movies list because it was too new huh too new as in it came out after it came out post uh it came out after 2002 when was the the time he submitted his list before that um okay i mean you toss out a couple hits you're probably gonna be right oh no oh it's so much pressure uh is persona on there (laughs) it is not is there a Tarantino movie on there? There is not. Okay. Is there a David Lynch movie on there? There is not. Oh my God, Jesus Christ. Is, <laughs> is there a Stanley Kubrick movie on there? There is one. Uh, dun, is it 2001? Dun. Yes. Okay, I'm going to stop while I'm ahead. All right, 2001 <laughs> is great. So we also have Aguirre, The Wrath of God, uh-huh. Apocalypse Now, uh-huh. Citizen Kane, yeah. La Dolce Vita, mm-hmm. The General, mm-hmm. Raging Bull, mm-hmm. Tokyo Story, mm-hmm. The Tree of Life. Oh. 
and Vertigo. Tree of Life is the one that does not have a great movies list. Those are those are some goats. Those are some greatest of all times. There are a couple others that he had on previous lists that got edited out, and that includes the Decalogue, Gates of Heaven, The Third Man, Floating Weeds, Notorious, Casablanca, and Twenty Eight Up. Wow. So yeah. There you go. Okay, and one last thing, I'm going to ask you. You did the math. How many movies have you seen before on this list that we've talked about? 88. 88. Okay, and I'm not I'm not trying to make you feel bad or anything. <laughs> I'm not bringing this up to flex or anything. I've seen 242. Yeah, you so have quite a head start. I, but I have a head start in life. I'm, yeah, I'm that's quite true. a bit older. Yeah, I'm so, trying you know, to get up there in years, too. You know? you're, you're, you're getting there. You'll never catch me until, <laughs> well, unless you kill me. Um, yes. All right. That's it. That's it. We're going to talk about the movie now. Are you Woo-hoo! ready? I'm excited. Yeah, I think so. Uh, for those who forgot from half an hour ago when we started this, uh, we are talking today about Un Chien Andalou, which translates to an Andalusian dog. This movie was directed by Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali. It was released on June 6, 1929, and it is a co-production of the Spanish and the French. It stars Pierre Batchef, Simone Morwell, uh, Luis Buñuel, Salvador Dali, and Jaime Miraveles. I appreciate you going after all these... Um... Uh, French accents. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this. <laughs> I, like I'm gonna try though. Like yeah. I'm I'm sure I'm uh, uh, murdering this. It, you know? I'm assing <laughs> it. A little bit about Luis Buñuel. Uh, we are gonna be talking about him a few times. He has five movies on this list. Cool, cool, cool. cool. Uh, Buñuel was born in Spain in 1900, and he was a conceptual artist, film critic, and filmmaker. Mm-hmm. This is his first movie, mm-hmm. and one of the very few of his early projects that still survive. He made a lot of short films around this period that are lost to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he transitioned from shorts to feature-length films with Grand Casino in 1947. And after that, he was pretty prolific. He did a movie a year, pretty much, mm-hmm. until uh, the late 70s. His last film was 1977's That Obscure Object of Desire. Mm-hmm. And he retired after that and died in 1983 at the age of 83. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about surrealism. Because yeah. this movie is all about it. It's all about being crazy and mm-hmm. surreal. So this is one of the earliest examples of surrealist filmmaking, maybe the earliest example. Uh, Surrealism as a movement had only been around for like five years at this point, which is weird to think about. It's weird to think that someone invented surrealism. It was weird to see Dolly's name like in the credits of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Picture him like working on a film. He was 24 when he made this movie. He was a baby. And you know because he plays one of the priests in this. And so you can actually see how young he is. And he doesn't have a signature mustache. Mm Uh, so yeah, the medium surrealism for those who don't really know, it's it's kind of it's an artistic expression of the subconscious. So so what we're dealing with here, normally I would probably start this film discussion with like a, a one sentence plot summary or something like that. You can't really do that with mm-hmm. Inchian Andalou because there is no plot to speak of. It's mm-hmm. kind of surrealism is all about expressing subconscious things. So it's about the collision of images, like of non sequitur images. And it's meant to evoke an emotional or a physical response from its audience. Like, we're meant to be discomforted by this. Mm -hmm. Um, To just kind of, yeah, you know, just just to kind of take in these images and and see what it makes us think and what it makes us feel. So, yeah, the artist most commonly associated with surrealism is Salvador Dali, who is sometimes credited as the co-director of this film. Uh, Dali, like Buñuel, he hails from Spain, and he was a pioneering early voice in surrealism. Uh, he was very, very young when they shot this. They followed up with another collaboration in the the next year called L'Age d'Or, which, again, fucking up the French, but it means the golden <laughs> age in 1930. So the inspiration for this movie came from when Buñuel and Dali were talking about their dreams with each other. Dali remembered having a dream where 
a cloud moved across the sky like a razor blade slicing an eyeball. Ah. And Buñuel had a dream about his hand being covered in ants. Oh, so well, there you go. They made it a reality. They made it. They made it. Those were the foundational <laughs> images for this movie. And from there, they kind of spun it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the images here, they range from shocking to just strange and sometimes almost funny in a weird way um everything from the male lead dragging two pianos saddled with dead horses (laughs) to ants crawling out of a hole in one's hand to Uh a woman's armpit hair transposing onto a man's mouth like so yeah they're largely disconnected and the lines between time and place are kind of blurry here Mm -hmm. all right so this is a movie that's kind of meant to evoke a reaction what was your reaction this was your first time watching this yes okay my first time watching it um i'm not it wasn't my first like experimental or I guess oh, no. surrealist film. Um, I had seen some Maya Darren before, so I was sure. kind of like, all right, here we fucking go. Um, and I was surprised at like how jaunty it was, like how high energy it was yeah. for what it was. Like it really like sped along. And I loved the match cuts. I was like, whew, like the the slicing through the eye, I can see why is the most iconic shot from oh, this. And it's what most so upsetting. Yeah. Remember. Yeah, it is very, it is like just sort of comes at you in, the first like five i don't know the first 30 seconds maybe and like seeing the the cloud go through the moon too like right before setting it up yeah oh i thought that was really effective um and yeah i i guess with films like these i kind of i'm like all right i don't really know what to make of this and i don't really know how to parse this out logically so i am just gonna sit here and feel what i feel and let it sort of wash over me. And basically what I felt was like that there's this couple that is trying to be together but can't because mm. all of these crazy dramatic things are stopping them. And it just and there were like parts of it that felt so like nightmarish and um yeah, like the and surprisingly gory for a film from 1929. Yeah. Um like the hand and the animals. So It's weird to think like I mean, this existed before the Hayes Code, and plus Spain, Spain and France didn't have the Hayes Code. Right. So it's interesting to see this kind of uncensored content. Yeah. I guess I felt uh, overall, I mean, this isn't a hot take, but uh, unsettled, but yeah. like, uh, but uh, in, a, in a jolly way. <laughs> there is a weird playfulness to this uh-huh. movie for as like gross and upsetting as it's trying to be. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really get the sense that this movie's trying to upset me. Mm-hmm. I think it's trying to be kind of blunt and trying to recreate these images that have occurred to them subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And to a degree, I think the filmmakers are just putting these out there for us to analyze because maybe they don't quite know what to make of them themselves. Mm-hmm. These are subconscious images. So you can read lots of different things into it. I think there's a heavy um, sexuality component going through here. I think yeah. the re- you, there's a, the scene where... Uh, the male lead or the scene, yeah, quote unquote, yeah, the, where the male lead uh, is confronting himself, uh, but it's like a much cleaner cut, besuited version of himself, mm-hmm. and he's like reaching out to him in an intimate way. I mm-hmm. feel like they're wrestling with some urges there. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Boonwell and Dolly both had kind of famously. Uh, disruptive relationships with women mm-hmm. uh as yeah. as a lot of spanish yeah, what, artists around this time i was gonna were. ask you what did you make of the scene of uh the guy just like groping that woman that was really upsetting yeah. i mean he because well the the male essentially turns into a zombie uh-huh. while this is happening like yeah. his eyes roll back and he's like drooling blood from his mm-hmm. mouth yeah. and all the while he's groping this woman against mm-hmm. her will mm-hmm. and her clothes keep appearing and disappearing and like mm-hmm. different body parts will switch around yeah. So, 
there there is a sense like I I feel like they're wrestling with that urge in themselves mm. like because I it does I don't get the sense that they find this Pleasure to be an attractive it. urge no it doesn't it doesn't feel like sensual at all no it feels very it's just kind of gross yeah yeah it, it feels lascivious but it also feels like they're yeah they don't want to titillate with this mm-hmm. scene mm-hmm. it is i think the core point you know and the woman is at no point comfortable and yeah. uh she she tries to flee away right. um what did you think? Oh, so, okay, the the eyeball scene is the most famous <laughs> one, and I think that's the one most people are familiar with. It was done using a uh, a real calf's eye uh, and oh, a, a no razor way. blade. Really? Yeah, it was a dead. It was a dead calf already, but oh, yeah, it was real. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a famously mm-hmm. disturbing moment because yeah. the camera is real, real close <laughs> on this eye. Yeah. Uh, you see all the all the viscera coming out of it, and it's very it's very gross. It's yeah. very gooey and it's very unsettling. It's jarring as hell. It is, and you have to imagine. Like I read that Boonwell, during the premiere of this movie, he hid behind the movie screen with a bunch of rocks in his pocket because he was prepared to have to defend himself to get out of the theater. Oh. He thought people were going to be so mad at his movie oh, uh, that he would have to fight his way out. But it turns out they all really liked it, and they just <laughs> they they got what he was going for. Huh. But. I wonder if that would be the same today. <laughs> yeah. But I, this movie did kind of come to me when I first saw it. Well, I saw it firstly because I was a big fan of the band The Pixies. Uh, and The Pixies are obsessed with this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually saw The Pixies live maybe 10 years ago in Denver. Mm-hmm. And before the show, they played the entire movie oh, really? uh, on, on a screen. In, like, with this score? With, with uh, no, with um, uh, Pixies music underscoring oh, it. Uh, their song Debaser mm-hmm. is all about this the, the whole lyrics or the chorus lyrics are just frank black screaming i'm uchian andalusia <laughs> and uh so it, it's it's definitely that's how i came to it mm. it felt like this very kind of like dangerous shocking movie mm. um kind of the people talked about almost like they talked about todd browning's freaks it's like oh man i can't believe that they got away with this movie all the way back then in the 20s mm-hmm. you gotta see it you gotta see it like yeah. it's not allowed in this state or this state <laughs> or this state which i don't think it was ever actually banned uh, uh but you know you can understand people getting upset yeah. by it i think it's too confusing to be super offensive yeah I yeah I, I i didn't feel offended i didn't and yeah the some of the images are a little grotesque but they're mm-hmm. also the isolating scene is in the first seconds of the movie, mm-hmm. and it's literally it's two second shot, and then it's over. Yeah, it it never felt like it was sort of being like extra gross just to be gross. No, no. I mean, it it's definitely it catches your attention, mm-hmm. like right in the beginning of this movie. You're like, oh my god, yeah, you know, what is this movie? Yeah, and it does play with body horror in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. So. I was wondering, do you have any intel on the hand and how they did the the severed hand in the street? I don't know hands? exactly, but like yeah. I know. You know, they had the ant, like, you could see the ants with, like, when the, the hand has a hole in it and their mm-hmm. ants crawling out. You could see that that's kind of an early prosthetic. Oh, okay. Um, as far as how it got in the street, I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie plays around with gender a little bit as well. Did you, did you notice that, like, the the person who finds the hand in the street is kind of this, like, beautiful androgynous person in male garb but with very female kind of presenting makeup Mm -hmm. the one who gets hit by the car the one who gets hit by the car yeah yeah yeah. so i think it's playing with gender in an interesting way Mm -hmm. um i guess at the end of the day i'm not entirely sure what it's trying to say or if we're supposed to know what it's trying to say yeah uh 
because it, it is the images are intentionally disconnected and they're intentionally jarring mm-hmm. and you kind of move from one little set piece to the next and they bleed together and like time and space and location don't really mean anything. Right. Several characters are going to be playing the same or playing different versions of themselves across mm-hmm. different time periods, you know, yeah. so. With movies like this, I'm always sort of like happy with any crumbs. Like I'm happy that we had consistent actors. Like I really go into these with like, okay, just like throw everything in the kitchen sink at me and yeah it's not it's not going to be connected it's not going to be make sense and i'm ready for that yeah and i'll just piece together what you do give me and what you did give me was like connection between people mm. um and the lack thereof and like these high intensity situations um with like people people's lives being in danger and these sort of brief grotesque images um so we're never really comfortable but yeah. like all these ideas are sort of just like floating off in my head and they don't really like spin together to create a cohesive whole and what i'm left with is kind of just like okay yeah (laughs) i don't know i think you know you you definitely see the the ripple effect of this movie i think it's easy to be kind of dismissive of surrealism because there's kind of a stereotype about like first year film student projects you know they're really bad disconnected images like this that don't really seem to know uh what's going on and then there are great movies like Eraserhead that kind of take this transition and move it you know you talked about Maya Dara and the meshes in the afternoon would be Mm -hmm. like arguably for me a stronger addition to be on this list than Andalou. I feel like it's a more accomplished film that one definitely stuck with me more than this one yeah yeah who's to say but who's to say who's to say (laughs) I mean yeah it might stick with you for a while longer Um, but you know, it's, it's very striking. Uh, and I think as an early film, as like, this is really playing around with a lot of stuff. Like images are bleeding into each other. There's lots of smash cuts. There's lots of crossfading. There's different things like that. Uh, so cinematically it's pretty accomplished and pretty ambitious for a 16 minute film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, like we said, uh, Dolly and Boonwell show up in cameos as the uh, priests being dragged behind the piano that also has a dead mule on it. Um, sure. Which Why not? I think he's literally just saying, like, uh, he's saddled by artistic endeavor, I guess. <laughs> like, it, it's a... Uh, it, yeah. yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it could be a reflection of the actor having to bear all of this himself, mm-hmm. or it can be... Mm-hmm. Uh, Boonwell and Dolly transposing themselves onto this young man who's like trying to get away from this perception, mm-hmm. this this weight of genius, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could say that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, a couple of little trivia bits about this movie that I found interesting. So like uh both of the leads in this movie ended up killing themselves. Whoa, really? uh, oh, in shit. rather horrible ways. So um oh my, oh, my notes are all squirrely. Um well, Pierre Batchef, who plays a young man here, he uh died of intentional overdose in 1932 when he was 24 years old. And Simone Morel, who uh, played the woman, she lived to uh, 1951. And she killed herself by walking into a public square in Paris, dousing gasoline on herself and immolating herself. Oh, shit. Horrible way to go. My Lord. So sad. Um yeah, and, and yeah, I've, several other musicians, you know, we talked about the Pixies, but David Bowie also used to show this movie before uh, mm. every stop in his Station to Station tour in the 70s, because huh. he was just really obsessed with it and influenced by it as well. Interesting. So, huh. I don't was know. It, um, I guess I don't have much context for the other types of movies and surrealist art that was happening at this time. But yeah. Was there anything that you could sort of like 
compare this to at the time or was it really unlike anything that had ever come out? I am really trying to think about there is um, the very first ever claymation film, which we weirdly talked about on Ultra 64, mm-hmm. is uh, something about, oh, the, the the Welsh Rarebits dream or something like that, or a dream of Welsh Rarebits, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and it has the first example of claymation. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes in the form of a nightmare in which a character is being scolded by three statues of the city fathers that keep like melting and reforming and yelling at him. And it's all mm-hmm. a silent film. I think it was like 24 or 25. Okay. okay. So I think that kind of presaged it a little right. bit. But um, what were like... Cab- Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, very oh, expressionist, yeah. came out in 1920. Okay. Yeah. So, but like what were like the... I guess, quote-unquote, popular movies that were coming out in 1929. Like, what were sort of the the prominent, like, the people who saw film, like, this is the idea they would have of what film is? Yeah. Um, So, 1929, so we would have had the jazz singer by now. So, Mm -hmm. the sound era has kind of informally started. So, there is, like, some normie movies out there. Yeah. I believe the biggest movie of this year was The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse with uh, Rudolph Valentino. Hmm. Um, which kind of made him a household name. Uh, wow. So, and I don't know much about that movie. It sounds like a big biblical epic, but yeah, yeah that'd be my guess. Huh, interesting. Okay, yeah. so this was still like, this was like, you know, the art house of its time. This this was, yeah, this was still there, and this was outside of the norm, very much so. Surrealism itself was very much outside of the norm, um, and it was still kind of being developed as a genre. Do you think that we have anything that we could compare it to today? Anything that's coming out that's like it? Um, I'm curious to think about that, actually. Either I mean, like we definitely have, we have, we have filmmakers who have been hugely influenced. I think, you know, David Lynch, we've obviously mentioned mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky, I think was hugely mm-hmm. inspired by this. Mm-hmm. A24 is always putting out some very weird, interesting stuff that could yeah. almost be like this. But mm-hmm. I, as far as like this very short, very potent blast of imagery, I don't think we've seen anything At quite At least from America, like I guess I would say. Yeah. I think we're getting, I I from my very limited knowledge of like experimental film in other places. Yeah. Um, like there are some interesting things coming out of Brazil and like, and, and when I think about shorts coming out of like shorts, like possibly in Michigan, I suppose are some more against the grain type stuff that is, is finding an audience. Yeah. But it's still, it doesn't, it still feels like something that's as absurd and surreal as this, like doesn't feel like it's breaking through today i don't know yeah i don't know that this would i don't know this would because if you look at the oscars like the short film categories even they tend to be dominated by disney Mm -hmm. you know like or or little kind of short feel-good stories Mm -hmm. that aren't quite as boundary pushing as this one was um Mm. yeah there's a there's a kind of provocateur vibe to this Mm -hmm. movie but also like and maybe it is much more extreme than it feels now. Maybe we're just kind of jaded and because I've been playing The Last of Us 2 all day and like, you know, so I'm just don't, you know, no, I don't feel anything anymore, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it I, I, would, I wish I could like know what it was, the kind of impact that it had when this came out. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, there we go. Do you have anything else to say about Unchien and Alu? I guess I enjoyed it. I, enjoy, I, I yeah. enjoyed watching it, and I didn't. I generally, I genuinely did not think that it would be. It would, it would be enjoyable to watch. 
but there you go. There are definitely some movies on this list that I know I'm going to have to force myself to get yeah. through. Some of them I know because I've seen them before and oh, I'm going to revisit them. But yeah. like, but this was not painful. This was not painful. Yeah. No, it's it's 16 minutes and it feels like it. Mm-hmm. Like it's quite it's quite short and swift. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never dull for a second, and it's always going to give you something that's going to be thought provoking or mm-hmm. memorable yeah. to look at. I guess I feel like respect. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, it. this is a weird one to start with almost because I'm not really sure how to describe it. It's such a visual film. But, I mean, we watched it on YouTube. It's available free in its entirety on YouTube. Uh, Say definitely check it out there. Yeah, Um, you got 16 minutes to spare? Yeah, why not? And you do. Everyone does right now. We all do. Yeah, so uh, be be a little forewarned that there's going to be some shocking imagery, but Mm -hmm. check it out. Uh, right into us. We're going to have an email address in the show notes uh, of this episode. We also have a Letterboxd uh, account that we're opening where we are uh, ranking all these movies and you can watch along with us. And please do. We want you guys to watch along with us. Tweet at us. Send us emails. Let us know what you think. So uh, next episode, we're going to kick off by talking about uh, the essay, the Roger Ebert's essay on Unchian Andalou. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to be talking about, uh, do you want to guess what kind of movie we're talking about? It, 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 like, um, out of like <laughs> 300, we can't narrow it down. No, 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 I'm not going to make you do that. Uh, we are going to be talking about a film from 1967, the most represented year on this list, mm-hmm. and it's Richard Brooks's In Cold Blood, based okay. off the Truman Capote true crime classic. Right. Uh, I have not seen this movie. So I have not either. There we go. All right, we're going in cold to In Cold Well, I've read the book, <laughs> but ah. yes, we're going in. <laughs> Cold, cold Blood. Yes. Before. In Cold Blood. Uh, check that movie out. You can watch along with us. I'm not sure where it's available, but you'll find it. You're all yeah. resourceful. I trust you. Film is Truth is open again. So film is Truth is open it. again. So if you are in Bellingham, uh, Film is Truth is a wonderful local video store. Send them your support as much as you can. They are open right now. So, yes. Well, Michaela, thank you so much for talking about this movie with me. Thanks, Steve. I'm excited to go on this journey with you. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. All right, everybody. We will see you next week in cold blood. Bye. Bye.